Alright, I want to follow up with the theme that God's been putting on our hearts for the last month or so, maybe more than that. The last time I preached, I preached on the idea of what is your prime mover? What is your primary motivation for what you do? What is your superior motivation? Why do you do what you do? And you say, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about everything. Everything. Why do you do it? If you do something, why do you do it? Anyone here not do anything ever? Exactly. So, with the things you do, why do you do it? What is your actual primary motivation? Right? You can say, well, I, I uh, go to work because I need to make money. Why? Why are you making money? That's the big question, right? This is, I'm asking why. Are you saying if you, you're looking at the function, well, money equals being able to get what we need, then I point you to Matthew 6, right? And I say, this is what the Bible says. There's a world philosophy, there's a kingdom philosophy, and they are almost always at odds with each other, right? You can operate from the foundational teachings and principles of Christ, and view the world through those lenses, or you can operate through the foundational principles of this world and view your life through that filter. But if you look at through the kingdom's filter, through the eyes of Christ and his teachings, he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything you need that all the the Gentiles are chasing after, he will give to you. Then he gives these two drastic examples. Look at the birds in the field. They don't toil, they don't save up, yet your father takes good care of them, of how much more value are you than them. And he says, look at the flowers of the field. They don't do anything to be what they are, to look as beautiful as that, but I'm telling you that I make them more beautiful than King Solomon at the height of his glory. And if I do that for the flowers in the field that are here today, gone tomorrow, of how much more value do I have towards you? Why is Jesus saying these things? Because he's trying to establish with, with objective realities the fact that you can believe what he just said before that, which is this. You can spend your life and your primary motivation seeking the kingdom and his righteousness. You do not have to spend your primary efforts and motivation in seeking provision. You don't have to spend 50 to 60 hours of your life every single week for the purpose of making sure you have what you need. There is literally a direct promise from God saying that if you do what he says, he will take care of those things. Now in America and a lot of the the first world countries in the West, we conflate need with comfort. Well, I need I need a 2022 vehicle. I can't be driving around in a car from 2017. This is a need. And God is not providing from that for me, so I had to work hard to make that happen. And your confusion of comfort with need makes God a liar. In your mind, in your heart, and it just continues to establish the fact that you can't really trust God. They're just cute parables. Instead of actually giving your life completely to the kingdom and the righteousness of God and saying, God, what do you have for me? He may have for you working 50, 60 hours a week in a trade or a field. 
Because it's God who holds the power to give wealth. That's what he told the Israelites. And he gave 11 out of those 12 tribes land to work and to produce wealth. And that was the call of God on their life. And they pleased God by doing that. They pleased God by producing wealth. By working hard every day, tilling the fields, farming the animals, trading and producing wealth. God looked at them and said, well done for doing what I've called you to do. But what is your motive for producing wealth? Is it to get comfort? Is it to erase any fear of needs or provision? If so, your motives stink. Your motives are based on the principles of this world and are driven and founded in fear. But if your motive for producing wealth is to the glory of God because he is so good and you want to please him and this is the assignment he's given you is to produce wealth and fund the work of God, then you are well-pleasing to the Lord. And your motive is righteous. And that applies for everything. So I don't want to repeat the message, but that was the theme, right? And I spent most of the time talking about, hey, here's what wrong motives look like because this is what Scripture says, correct motives. Your driving force should be the glory of God. But why? Why should you care about the glory of God? Goes against our human nature, right? Our human nature says, but what about my glory? So where's the actual motivation to pursue the glory of God? Just think about it, because if the answer is a little bit difficult to find in your heart, then we need to do some work with God. But that's the question, why? Why? Should the glory of God be such a forceful, driving motivation for us to live our lives? So I wanted to get into that part today, right? So in John 15, 9 through 17, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. And in this, he says, no longer do I call you servants. But now I call you friends. The weight of that should not slip by. That should hit you in the feels. Right there. That the God of heaven and earth. The creator of the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the earth and the mountains and the fields and the rivers and the oceans. The one who has the entire beauty of the cosmos at his disposal. That he can look and see the Andromeda galaxy and just be pleased at his creation. And he can look in the far distant reaches of the universe and see all the beautiful nebula that is spawning brand new stars and beautiful things. And he can just say, look at this. This is amazing. I love this stuff. That that God, that divine being, chooses... To look past those things and stare at you and say, I don't call you, you're not even servants to me anymore. You and me, we're friends. You're my friends. You're the ones I want to spend time with. I want to be with. But I want to go deep into this concept of friend because otherwise this passage doesn't mean much. 
Who has friends in here? Raise your hand. Put your hands down. How many of you guys have 10 or more friends? Raise your hand. Raise them high, guys. This is visible. If you have 10 or more friends, raise your hand. How many of you guys have 20 or more friends? Raise your hand. How many of you guys feel like you have 50 or more friends? Raise your hand. There are still hands going up. You superhuman people, I don't know what the heck is going on, but this is what I want to talk about. I think, especially in America, we conflate the idea of companion or acquaintance with friend. Because we don't know the true value of the word most of the time. C.S. Lewis has an entire section of his book called The Four Loves just on phileo, this idea of friendship love. And you're like, phileo, friendship? No, phileo is deep family. Exactly. That's where the breakdown comes. The word friend means something far beyond what we typically use it to mean. Okay? A friend is someone that, that you have uttermost trust in. You can say the most stupid, erroneous things in a moment of fleshing out, and they don't think that's who you are. Because they know who you are. They know you well enough. Right? That's the idea of friend. But he goes on to this whole thing about how, like, hey, you know what? You can be in a room full of 50 friends, people you love, you care about, right? But in that room, there's usually two or three people that find this common thing that connects you, right? And you begin to feel this sense of affection or connection with them that goes a little bit beyond the casual acquaintance or companion, And these friends mean something. In Proverbs, it says this, that a man with an abundance of friends ends up in ruin. (laughs) You're like, what? I never read that. It's there. I promise. Okay? It's in there. It's Proverbs. I think uh, 18. It's like the last verse in Proverbs 18. And it says, a man with an abundance of friends, or some translations say too many friends, leads to ruin. Right? That's what it says. But then it says, but a friend will stick closer than a brother. Now look at what, this is, this is just wisdom. It's like popcorn wisdom. There's no, there's no context before it. There's no context after. It's literally in a chapter of like just the coolest one-liners. Right? Over and over. And at the end, it says that a man with an abundance of friend will lead to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we often use that to say that's Jesus, because it's true. Jesus is a friend, and he's the best of friends, so if a a true friend can stick closer than the brother, so can Jesus. But this isn't talking about Jesus specifically. It's just talking about a friend. And it's equating that or contrasting that with a person who has an abundance of friends. And that's an interesting take, because what he's saying is someone who has all these friends is probably not doing anything uh, intentional, specific mission. Any of you guys been been on mission, you have a hard time maintaining friendships, because you're on mission. And you find that your friends are those who are on mission with you, the ones you work together. Here's some examples of of true friends, right? In, In ancient literature... This idea of friendship was like central to their writings. It was, it was key. When you look at Shakespeare and you look at the, the friendships he writes about, and specifically in the Bible, it has some really strong examples of this. 
But um, the most powerful of them all is obviously Sam and Frodo, right? <laughs> Listen, it's just a beauty. And this is why Tolkien writes that in all his writings because he was such a fan of the ancients of the ancient literature and the writings and the concepts, and also of scripture. And he took the concept of David and Jonathan, and he intertwined it into the characters of Sam and Frodo. And you see it played out specifically in the books. When you read the books, they're a lot better than the movies, although the movies are pretty cool. But the books really capture this concept. But when you look at soldiers who have been in war together, right... There's, a, there's an entire TV show, TV miniseries called Band of Brothers. And the title is just so appropriate because it's the story of these units during World War II who are fighting fights and they become so close because they have to trust each other with their lives on a daily basis. But they don't just have to trust each other's intentions. They have to trust each other's abilities. They have to trust each other's work ethic. They have to trust each other's care for them. These people are the type of friends that will jump in front of a bullet for each other. That will jump on a grenade to save these other people. That type of motivation doesn't happen with acquaintances. But that type of friendship doesn't happen in coffee shops. It's forged in the fires of mission and battle and hardship And overcoming together. It's why Ecclesiastes says, hey, if you find one on the road alone, he's easily dispatched. But two or three together are not easily destroyed, right? This idea of friendship. When you look at the soldier and you look at David and Jonathan, where David, when he finds out Jonathan dies, says, David, your love for me was greater than that of any woman. David was expressing this deep, soul-connected relationship where they were in covenant with each other over a shared mission. They both recognized the will and the call of God for David to become king. Jonathan multiple times tells David, surely as the sun rises, you will be king and I will be your commander. That's what he says. You'll be king. I know it. Even though I'm the proper heir according to human reason, I know God has appointed you to be king and I will be your right-hand man. That's the type of relationship they had. That was Jonathan's plan. He was literally going to abdicate his rightful seat on the throne because God had a different plan and he recognized it and he willingly gave that up and said, I'm with you, David. My relationship with you is what matters. So you see that in this biblical concept of friendship. And then Jesus turns to his disciples at the end of the time he's with them. This is like his, his final salvo, this John 15, 16, 17. And the major theme is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. If you stay with me, you're going to always be loved. You're going to do what I did, and this is going to be great. You're going to be one with me, I'm going to be one with you, just like I'm one with the Father. This is going to be amazing. Just follow through with what I've taught you. Because guys, you're going to do this and it's not because you're my servants any longer. But you're going to carry on this mission because we are friends. We are deep friends. We are a band of brothers. We have been through 
the persecution and the hardship of the last three years with people wanting to kill me, people wanting to persecute you guys, and you guys are going to be through it too because if the world hates me, they're going to hate you as well. But listen, if you stay in me, I'm with you, I'm in you, and just like I'm with the Father and the Father is with me, we're going to be with you, and this mission is going to happen. And all of that is propagated from this concept. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I want to read it to you just so you hear hear the words as they're spoken. So you see, this is how he starts. He says, as the Father has loved me. Now get that. Don't miss it. How did the Father love Jesus? Unconditionally. Completely. You understand? Deeply. With strong affection and deep care did the Father love his one and only Son, Jesus. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, in American mindset, we might read that as conditional. If you keep my commands, I'll let you stay in my love. But if you don't obey my commands, I don't love you anymore. Right? That's how we treat like our pets and our animals and some of, sometimes our kids, unfortunately, and our friends. And everything's so conditional. Everything's as long as you please me, I'll be your friend. But, you know, if you don't, then I'm not. I used to love you, but then you stole my cookies, so now I don't love you anymore. <clears throat> and we read that into it. And it's important not to because we're saying, as the Father has loved the Son, who said, this is my Son, I'm so pleased in Him, before He had done a thing. He had done nothing, no ministry. He got baptized. Okay, if baptism is the bar for a father loving you unconditionally, everyone get baptized and don't question it ever again. But he didn't. He said, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. In other words, walk with me. Walk in the wisdom and the truth I've communicated with you, and you will remain in my love that way. He's not saying you will be able to earn my love. He'll say you will stay in that place of love between me and you, that interchange of love. Don't step out of it where you'll then run into competition in the world's thoughts and the lords and the things that will try to draw you away from my love. Don't. Stay where I've taught you to be. Walk the way I've showed you to walk so that you'll remain in my love. That's the essence of what he's communicating. He says, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. His goal is for us to have complete joy. This is my command. Now look, remember he said, if you stay in my command, right, walk in my commands, then you will remain in my love. And you're like, what commands, Jesus? You had so many of them, right? This is what he says. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has any greater love than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. And remember, what did he just call them? Friends. And he's about to demonstrate this before their eyes in the coming weeks. As he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But now you know what I'm doing. This is the part. This is the key, guys. Let me just read it. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So again, let me remind you, this is what I command you. Love one another. (laughs) That's what he says you need to do to stay in the love with the Father. Stay in the Father's love. To stay where he's instructed you to be. The right path. The path where you will be aligned with him and you will be in this exchange of love. This is the command you have to obey to stay there. Love one another. Love one another. Now, it's an entire different week-long conference seminar to go over what love means in Scripture and the four different Greek words and how they're so different but rich and depth. This does not mean hug one another, although that is included. It is the deep love the way the Father loved the Son. But the Father sent His Son to the cross on purpose, out of love. Isaiah tells us that it pleased God to crush his son. So you can't judge God's love for you by whether you have your 2022 vehicles, nice house, white picket fence, and a lawnmower that works. You might have none of those. None of those. You might be living on someone else's grace in their basement... Just barely scraping by and God is saying, I love you so much. I'm providing a roof over your head and food that you need. Now stay on mission. That's the love of the father because there's plenty of people in this world that don't have that. But when you look at this, this is what he's saying. So I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from the father. He said, I don't call you servant or slaves anymore because servants and slaves don't know why their masters are doing what they're doing. They just do what they're told and they're happy to be paid for that. But a friend, a band of brothers, people who are in this depth of loving friendship, do what they're asked to do because they see the vision, they share the vision, they own it. They have had made known to them why they're doing it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you're my friends now. I have revealed to you the love of the Father. I've revealed to you our mission. I've made you an intricate part. I've poured my love out into you. We have developed this depth of relationship through trial and tribulation, and it's going to continue. But now, this is your motivation, guys, that you are friends with the living God, and you have been welcomed to be on mission with me. What is this mission? To show the world the glory of God that you have seen with your own eyes. So that they can come to me just like you have come to me. That's why he says right afterwards, you did not choose me. I chose you. And when you read in chapter 16 and 17 of John, he goes on to talk about those who will come after you. That they would see the same love and glory that you guys have seen. And they will walk in it. And he prays for them. That they would be in the same place. So... Why did I say all that? Because I want you to get the idea and the meaning and the depth behind Jesus making a point to call them friends at the end. Right? They were faithful students of the rabbi. They were faithful disciples and apprentices of Jesus while they walked with him. He said jump. They said how high? Right? He showed them how to wax on, wax off, and they did it correctly. Eleven of them did. 
It's such a good joke when you don't even need to explain it and you just hear the laughter starting to trickle and trickle, 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 trickle. Like, yes, it landed on most of you. Some of you guys are like, what's wax on, wax off? I don't get it. <laughs> I'm not explaining it. That's just, it's, if you don't know what that is by now, gosh, you're either new or you haven't been listening for years. But I want you to get that, that Proverbs is making clear that a friend, there are friends who will stick closer than a brother. And these are the people we're on mission with. These are the people that make up the church. That's the idea. Okay? A band of brothers on mission for the glory of God. <clears throat> so that's like great. And you're like, oh, he is. We are friends. I don't feel that. But listen, guys, God loves you. Revelatory thought. But he really does. He really, really does. And for no good reason in my mind, right? Or in your mind, if you can think of a good reason that has something to do with you in your mind, you're thinking wrong. You gotta read the Bible. He loves us because he chose to. We didn't choose him, he chose us. Not because you're pretty or handsome or smart. Or wise? It's because he did. Because it's his nature. It's part of his core identity. Love. And so he does. And so he loves us. And then he says, here's the mission disciples. This is what he says to them. As you have been loved by me, love others. That's what he's telling his disciples here. And his disciples, the only context they have to be able to obey him is what they've experienced. There's no book on it for them. No one wrote a book on how to, how to be loved by God at this point. Their only reference to obeying that command is, wait, as we've been loved, okay, how has he loved us? Oh, he's loved us like this and like this and like this. Even when he's called us you of little faith a hundred times, he still keeps loving us and he still keeps training us and bringing us about. And even now, after all that, after like we, if we judged ourselves, we failed as, as students of a rabbi. And he says, you guys are my friends now. And I love you. Like I love you and I want you to remain in this love just like my father loves me and I love him and we remain in this love I want the same exact thing for you and me and we've we've started to build it and I love it and because of it I'm recognizing this fact that you're now my friends we are friends this was the humanity of Jesus fully involved in this process as well all the affections and emotions that he was feeling towards these 11 guys who had committed to follow him to the death. On multiple occasions, they committed to that. And he knew their frailties. He even tells them what they're going to do. He tells Peter, man, you're my most loyal, faithful guy. You're so boisterous and loud about it. And you're going to deny me three times to save your butt. And I love you. And you're my friend. Because I'm fully aware of your shortcomings and your frailties. But I still chose you. And I'm still here with you. Right? This, this is where the motivation starts to take its deep root. Okay? Is that because 
He loved you and gives you the opportunity to be loved every day. He's saying, now go show people this. And they, all they have to go with is no big philosophy. They haven't developed their theology about it yet. They haven't studied Luther or any of the big names in church history to figure out what this looks like. They just said, this is how he made me feel. I want to go make other people feel this way. This is what he showed me. I want to go show others this. He revealed to us through direct revelation from the Father who loves me that he is the living God. I want to go share that revelation experientially with people. I want to go up, tell them that they're loved, hug them, and then say, Jesus is all about you. So... That's God's love, and it would take us forever to really drill. We know there's so many lies of the enemy in your head right now. You're coming up with 100,000 reasons why it's not true for you and why he doesn't love you and can't love you. Whatever. I guess you're more powerful than God and his promises. But this is what I, this is, I want to wrap up with this, but I don't want to skip past this point, right? So let me just say this and then I'll go to the wrap up point. <clears throat> because God loves us, he disciplines us, right? But what he's disciplining us for is in order to draw us closer to a place where we'll be more willing and able to recognize that he truly loves you. So that you won't have all this junk in your life, the world's philosophies and the shortcomings, to get in the way that keeps you from knowing you're loved and being able to be on mission, which is to love others. Obey. This is my command to you guys. Love others. And he goes on earlier for all the theologians, and he says, guys, listen. In this command, all the law and the prophets are summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he's quoting Deuteronomy there. So right there, they already knew that part, right? And so he's giving them the answer they're looking for. But then he adds something to it. And he says this, I know you only asked for what the greatest command is, but let me tell you what the second one is. He says it's just like it. Love each other. Later on, Paul says this, this is the command of God to love each other. So Jesus, in answering them, says all the law and the prophets mean everything you're worried about measuring yourself against, right? All the things, all the reasons why God doesn't love you, right? He's saying all those things will be fulfilled. You'll actually be doing them correctly. You're not failing in them anymore. All the law, all the prophets summed up, fulfilled in this one command. Love each other as you have been loved. And so he says, this is my command to you guys. Remember the one command to stay in his love? This is it. As you've been loved, love each other. So complicated. (laughs) No, it's a joke, guys. Dang, that one missed. (laughs) It's not complicated. It's so simple. We make it complicated. But but having this vision for what God is after in us, what he's doing in us, right? 
And why he's not only allowing pain, why is he, why is he directly causing pain? Why does it please God to crush his son? Why does he discipline those who he loves and treats as children? What is the reason for the pain? It is to become like him. So we can love like him. But we need the vision to give the pain its purpose. So that we can take joy in the trials. In the fires, in the pain, in the suffering, there's joy. There's not necessarily happiness, but there is a deep, fulfilling, abiding joy when you have a vision for the pain. Because its purpose is to make you like Christ. And then when you love those who need Christ, you're loving them in the same way you've been loved. And that's what transformed you. So guess what it will do to them? It's the power of the gospel. It's words lit on fire by the love of God. And empowered by the Holy Spirit who's pleading through you. Absolutely. Trying to remember how I said it. It's not in my notes. Yes, that's the gospel, the power of God into salvation, guys. This is what the Bible says. But unless we're coming from that other realm, then it's just idle talk. Unless it's literally backed up with love, it's idle talk. So look, what, what is love? Luckily, literally, the Bible tells us. It gives us an entire chapter to tell us what it is, in case you were confused. But this is what I love about it. You know, there's no chapters when they were writing it. When Paul was writing his scrolls, he didn't break them into chapters for us. And one of the most egregious areas where we break them into chapters, in my perspective, is between 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. There should be no chapter break there, in my opinion. This is what he says. It's a continuing thought. All of chapter 12 is talking about how the difference of gifts bring the body together in unity, even though you're all different. But that all the different pieces come together, and they create the fullness of Christ. On the earth. All these expressions of the Holy Spirit that are different through each person. You come together and you get the fullness of what he intended. This unity in Christ. So, at the end of that, he says this. God has given you these gifts. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, managing various kinds of languages. Are all apostles? Of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all do miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in languages? No. Do all interpret? No. But regardless, desire the greater gifts. That's good. But let me show you a better way. He's saying the gifts are really good and they're really valuable for bringing unity to the body. And they're so good, you you should desire them. But let me show you a better way of uniting the diversity. And his very next sentence is this. If I speak in the languages of men and angels, but do not have love, the better way, 
I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now he's being emphatically uh, over the top with these things to make his point. He's saying you can have all the gifts in the world and do all these amazing things, but if your driving force is not love, it's useless. It's empty words to people as they look at a hypocrite just speaking religious stuff. And then he goes on after to say this, love is patient. Are you patient? Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not conceited. It does not act improperly. It's not selfish. It's not provoked. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Ooh, that one stings. It finds no joy in unrighteousness or the works of evil or darkness, however you want to understand that. But it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes in all things. It endures all things because love never ends. It never fails. It never quits. It never falls short. It never breaks down. It never stops doing what it's supposed to do. It just never ends. It's unconquerable. It's invincible. There is no defeating this. Love never fails. But as for prophecies, they're going to come to an end. They're going to serve a purpose that is not needed any longer at some point. As for the languages and tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, which is the full expression of the love of God here, Jesus himself, when, then the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And he says this, out of all the things that are going to pass away, three things will remain. Faith will remain. Hope will remain. We have this enduring, eternal hope in Christ. It is going to remain forever. Our faith in Christ will be vindicated and remain forever. And love, because it is God himself, will remain forever. And then he says, all three of these things are awesome. But the greatest of these is love. And then his very next verse of chapter 14, again a useless chapter break. He says, so pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. He's not pitting them against each other. He's just saying one is more important than the other. One is more foundational than the other. One is the place that the others spring from. That if the others were done without this foundational, more important part, then they are useless. You are just babbling. You are just saying stupid stuff. You are just being ignorant. Right? That's what love looks like. What does this look like as you engage your political enemies what does this look like when you're among friends and you're talking about the president and leader of our nation do you speak it in love are you motivated by love for biden and the 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 country when you are speaking your criticisms it's possible you can do that out of love i'm just saying do you 
when you're criticizing people who think differently than believe differently than you, is your motive for those criticisms the love that you have been loved by Jesus with? When you're disciplining your children, are you disciplining them from a place of love like Jesus loves you and he's disciplining you? When you're working through conflict, are you doing it motivated by a deep love that you have been loved by? If not, your efforts are doomed. Your efforts are demonic. They are doing the work of the devil. They are criticizing, tearing down, breaking down, destroying with your best intentions to build up. Because they're not being driven by the love of the Father for that person. And when we get the vision and we recognize that we have been loved in all of our worst things, then we understand why it's so important for the glory of God to fill the earth. Why it is so important for him to be lifted up and seen as glorious before the nations and before the people. Why the mission hinges on the glory of God being revealed. You want the world and others to share in this love? I think it's C.S. Lewis said that a joy shared is a joy doubled. And we've shared in this joy... This joy that in 15, Jesus says, this is why I want your joy to be complete. And we've received this joy. And now we want it to be doubled. Don't you want to experience more than that? More and more joy? Share it. And when you see those who are lost, who have never experienced real joy. And their eyes light up because the Holy Spirit is piercing their heart. And they see joy. And you see the joy. And now it's a love fest because your joy is being doubled on the spot. This is the vision. This is the purpose. So look, this is what I do, guys. There was this quote, and it was Albert Einstein who said it. He was a a God-fearer, but as far as I know, not a Christian. He didn't follow Christ. But he said this when people were asking him about how he came to his knowledge and his discoveries. At some point in his response to them, he said this. He said, wonder rather than reason, is the true source of knowledge. I want you to think about that, because I'm going to say it again. Wonder, rather than reason, is the true source of knowledge. And that is one of the most biblical things I've ever heard a non-Christian say. Do you know what wonder means? I looked it up. This is the definition of wonderful according to uh, Noah Webster. Exciting wonder. Because remember, the word is wonderful. Okay? It's exciting wonder. It's marvelous. It's astonishing. It's a sight wonderful to behold. You know what Proverbs tells us about the source of knowledge? He says it's from Jesus. Source of wisdom, from Jesus. That it's the Father who's given us these things. He says, tie this knowledge and wisdom around your neck. Wear them like jewelry so that they will lead you and direct you.
This is what wonder looks like in the Bible. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This was a big part of their discovery of who Jesus was, of them gaining the knowledge of who Jesus was. They sat in wonder at the things he did. And because of it, they received knowledge of who he was. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Psalm 139. Look at this example of just raw wonder. Guess I'm going to the real Bible here. I love the background music. It's perfect for Psalms, right? Psalms 139, 1 through 6. Says this, Lord... Now think about this as wonder. Think about what the writer of this psalm is doing, how he's responding to it. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wonderful knowledge this stuff is too wonderful for me it's beyond me it is lofty I am unable to understand it do you hear his language he's saying things that if we took the time and just marveled at it if we allowed amazing wonder to take place we start to find out who he is he's the God who has searched me and he knows me he knows my best he knows my worst he knows the awful things I did last week he knows the cool things I did next week and taking it all in he says I love you you're my friend in Psalm 103 This is the wrap-up in case you were wondering. In Psalm 103, he says this. My soul praise the Lord, and all that is within me praise his holy name. My soul praise the Lord. Something's got him excited that he's telling his own soul to do stuff. Praise the Lord. Do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Did you hear that? He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Why? Why should he do that? Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord execute acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord, he is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is full of faithful love. 
He will not always accuse you or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has not repaid us according to the ways we've offended him. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards us who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed the offenses we've caused him away from us. As a father has compassion on his own children, so the Lord has compassion on you who fear him. For he knows what we are made of. He remembers that we're made of dust. That's such a powerful statement, guys. In the midst of him declaring all these unbelievable things that are hard to believe, that are too wondrous to understand or grasp, he says, listen, guys, I know this is hard, but listen, I remember who you are. I know what you're made of. I haven't forgot. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field, and when the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him, and even towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenants. He knows you're like a flower that's here today and gone tomorrow, and he says, I don't care. My faithful love is towards you and even your grandchildren. It's, it's eternal. Lastly, I want to read you guys one of my favorites. This 2 Samuel 22. This uh, is this concept called God, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, God sightings, personalizing prayer, all these stuff that we're going to bring to you guys at some point. But it, these are exercises that help engage with the word of God in his heart. And this one, before I even knew what any of those terms meant, was mine. I loved the story of David and his mighty men. It is like just rooted in my heart and soul forever. From the moment I got saved at 19, I read a book that was about David. And it took root and it shaped my, shaped my understanding of relationship with God and faith and courage and victory and and being willing to to step out and risk your life for everything it's it's why I went into full-time ministry when I was 21 and there was no part of God making me or asking me to do it even I think I don't even think it was what his plan was but it didn't matter because because of David and his mighty men I could do it and not worry about provision that's the type of root it put there it put this courageousness to my faith right at the beginning But then as you get older, you realize you're not David. You're not even his mighty men. You might be part of his story, but you're often, you know, one of those like side characters that like falls away and joins Absalom. But then when David wins, you're back with David. Like that's the reality of our own self-evaluation. But the Lord has spoken to me multiple times in my life. And over a decade ago, a guy came from Indonesia and prophesied to us in Sean's basement. You remember that guy? And uh, it was, I was like at a low point in terms of self-esteem. And I just really did not think God was happy with me. And he prophesied that I was Benaiah. He said, first he said, you're like, you know the story of David? You're like David. Right? And I was like, yeah. Okay, buddy. <laughs> Like, what part of the story, David, you're reading? It'll depend on whether I agree with you or not. 
And then he went on, he went on in detail and he was like, and you also like Benaiah. You have the courage. You, 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 you want to fight the lions and you, you get frustrated at people not seeing things as fast as you do and want to do anything. He does all this thing. Ultimately, the word was like a loving rebuke at the end. So I don't want you to think he was like, Steve, you're awesome. He was like, you got a short window to respond to this, Steve, or it's passing you by. That's literally what he said. Um, but the word just spoke so deep because how does he know that? He doesn't. My two favorite people in the story, David, Benaiah. Most people don't even know Benaiah. It's just a short part of his thing. He jumped into a, a pit, killed a lion with his bare hands. God was hardcore. <clears throat> so I loved it. But this part always spoke to me. This chapter, it's the chapter right before the chapter about David's mighty men and all his exploits. But this part is where... and. And if I'm putting odds on whether I cry while reading this, the odds are like two to one. It's a safe bet, guys, okay? It just speaks so deep to me. I was just, I reread it during worship. I had no plans of doing this in the message. I was rereading it and I was just like a baby. But listen to, I want you to understand what I see in this so maybe you get from it. And really go into like prayer. We'll just end with this, all right? We'll sum it up here, but... David was referred to as a man who had a heart after God. God says multiple times that he was pleased with David. The end of David's life, his testimony is this, that David fulfilled all the works of God that God had for him to do. Man, I'll give you everything I own if you can guarantee that testimony for my life. That's David. Jesus said that the throne that David established the way he ruled and led in righteousness and in submitted to the father was so well done that it is the throne Jesus himself is coming to rule from the throne of David is established forever and nothing will ever undo it Jesus identifies himself as the seed of David So when you're talking about David, you're talking about a guy that God loves. Guess who else David is? One of the most wretched men you'll ever read about in the scriptures. I don't know of anyone who's done worse things than David did. I would not continue to be friends with David in David's lifetime. This man sent his faithful, mighty men it's atrocious the things he's done to their death in a sealed envelope that he carried by his own hand because he trusted David so much to have him killed because the guy was too honorable to go sleep with his wife while his fellow band of brothers were in battle he said I will not enjoy the pleasures of comfort while my brothers are given their lives in battle for the glory of Jehovah David tried to get him drunk two nights in a row to get him to do that. And when he said, I'm too honorable, David said, wrote a note saying, Joab, put him on the front lines and then pull all the troops back so that he dies. The reason why he murdered one of his faithful, mighty men was because he didn't have the self-control to go sleep with one of his five wives and 30 concubines. Instead, he had to take his faithful, righteous, mighty man's wife 
and sleep with her himself. And then he got her pregnant. And in order to hide it, tried to get his mighty man to sleep with his wife who wouldn't. And so he killed him. That's the man who established the throne that Jesus is going to rule from. That's the man that scriptures say had a heart after God that said the testimony of David is that he completed all the works that God had for him. Do you think God just missed those things David did? Do you think he just swept them under the rug because it was too important? He had already promised David, so, you know. No, he saw them all, and he dealt with them all justly, and he dealt with them righteously, and he dealt with them in love. And he still loves David. So if you haven't gone to the depths David has gone to, you're still loved as well. And if you've gone beyond the depths David has gone to, you're still loved as well. Because of this point, he loved you before you did anything, good or bad. Listen to this. This is David's song of thanksgiving at the end of his life, after he had done these things. He is fully aware of his own shortcomings, failures, and flaws, but he is also now intimately acquainted with the mercy and the grace of God. And he sings this song. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my mountain where I seek refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. He's my savior. You save me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I was saved from my enemies. Now listen to how he describes the the emotional place and even the, the literal place he's found himself in many times. And what he imagines from his life's experience with the Father, God's response to be. For the waves of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my terrifying distress. I called to my God in my desperation. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry for help reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by this fire. He parted the heavens. He ripped open the heavens. He rent the heavens and came down. A dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew to me. Soaring on the wings of the wind, he made darkness his canopy and disguise around him. A gathering of water and thick clouds, a storm. From the radiance of his presence, flaming coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High projected his voice and he shot arrows and scattered my enemies. 
He hurled lightning bolts and he routed them. The depths of the sea were laid bare and the foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord on my behalf. At the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he reached down from on high and he took hold of me. He pulled me out of the deep waters and he rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me and from all the things in my life that were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my distress. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a wide open place and he rescued me because he delighted in me. Do you hear the climax of that? Do you hear David's experience with his God? The the way that his father heard his desperate cry for help and not even the heavens and the earth could stand between his father and him in his response as he scattered his enemies and the singular sole reason why he did all of it was because he delighted in David. He delighted in the man whose flesh led him to murder his best friends. He delighted in the man whose flesh led him to take pride in the size of his armies instead of the power of God that he had seen. He delighted in that man who also, in the midst of all those things, never, never put his hope in anything other than God. Never put his hope in anything other than the love that the father had for him. And because of that, at the end of his life, he could confidently declare that God would move heaven and earth to rescue him from the things that overwhelmed him because God still delights in him. That's the gospel and that's the whole message for today, guys. God, knowing everything delights in you he will move heaven and earth to rescue you from the things that overwhelm you so you can have this confident hope that you can live your life for the glory of God and he will meet you where you're at and provide everything you need to do that and you can confidently testify to the lost and to the dying who have no hope that there is hope because you live in that hope you've experienced that hope Because you've been loved at your worst and you know it and now you're loving them. You're not just telling them that there is love for them. You are loving them. And through that, they will see Christ in you. Because as a good father, he's disciplining you to become like him. So that when you love, you're loving like him. And they're being loved like him. And they're seeing Jesus in it. Guys, let's stand up and take a couple minutes to just wonder at the love of God and let the wonder of God become your primary motivation for wanting to see the glory of God fill the earth. Let it be the fuel for your mission as you get to run with your Father who has reached down and pulled you out of those places that were overwhelming you. The places of fear that paralyze you. The places of guilt and shame that tell you you're not worthy. That tell you there's nothing for you here. Just wonder at the goodness of God. Who takes pleasure and delight in you. 
God, you're good. You're too good. It's too good to be true, but it's true. You are the one true thing. God, I ask right now that moving forward, God, that every motive for the mission, everything we do and every reason why we do it, God, would be because you've loved us and for your glory. God, that when we experience the painful disciplines of you from the Father, God, that we would have vision for its purpose and we would recognize it as being loved by you. God, that when you send us out into the mission field as sheep among wolves and we suffer hardships and pain and suffering, God, that we recognize your glory is being revealed through this. That your love for us is sustaining and that you delight in us. Just right now, in your own words, guys, as you meditate, as you wonder on the glory of God, right now, in your own words, just begin to declare your thanksgiving, your gratitude for who he is and what he's done and for the power of the gospel that has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and transposed you into the kingdom of his marvelous light.